We've got this one picture from a GeekWire Summit a few years ago when you were there, and I remember the question that I asked, and you were looking at me like, come on, buddy, where where did that question come from? <laughs> That's very <laughs> so funny. We'll see if we can top that on this All one. All right, well, maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't try to top that. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we report each day on what's happening around us in technology, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we get to talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news. Before we jump in, a final reminder. Join us next week, October 4th and 5th in Seattle, or online for the GeekWire Summit, featuring new Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, entertainer and entrepreneur Sierra, Microsoft Business Development Chief Christopher Young, and many others. You can register to join us at geekwire.com summit. Our guest this week is Brad Smith, Microsoft's president and the company's newly named vice chair. He's the author with Carol Ann Brown of Tools and Weapons, which just came out in a paperback version that includes three new chapters and new details throughout the book. Brad, I guess a lot has changed in two years. It's great to have you back on the show. Well, thanks, Todd. And it's great. It's always great to be with you. And yes, uh, yeah, most of the time when a book goes from hardcover to uh, paperback, you just change the cover. Uh, but there's been so much going on in the world, especially perhaps the world of technology, uh, that we wanted to take the opportunity to add new material, update uh, what we had written, and you know, offer some additional perspectives on what's going on. It really did strike me in reading the paperback version. I almost needed to compare docs in Microsoft Word so I could just, after having read the hardback, go through and see what exactly did Brad and Carol Ann add here. But clearly there are tons of new developments in cybersecurity. And I don't even think people had said the phrase COVID-19 back in 2019 when this book was published. And we want to talk about those issues on today's show, including the future of work. But I want to start, Brad, with ByteDance and TikTok. A lot of interesting details on Microsoft's negotiations for TikTok's U.S. operations. Very unusual situation with the, the Trump administration. And in fact, just this week at a conference, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella called the failed TikTok talks the strangest thing I've ever worked on. Brad, you had some big picture takeaways from it, but I just want to check with you first. Do you agree that the TikTok talks were the, also the strangest things you've ever worked on? Well, I thought that Satya put that remarkably well. I laughed when I read it. I, I will admit I've had the uh, pleasure and the challenge of working on some more unusual deals over the last 20 years with governments around the world and companies uh, you know, across the industry, enough so that I think I could... Uh, probably provide enough material for a whole series that I'd call even stranger things. Uh, but I would definitely include an episode on uh, TikTok, even if it might not have been exactly the strangest thing. It definitely ranks up there. Apart from the behind the scenes drama with the Trump administration and your discussion in the book of your back and forth with Mark Meadows after President Trump made an off the cuff comment to reporters on Air Force One, there is a big picture takeaway that relates to data sovereignty that you make a point about in the new version of the book. And you write in part that one lesson is that it's, quote, possible to run a foreign technology service in a domestic data center with strict security, privacy, and digital safety controls in a manner that provides appropriate transparency to government officials. And you say that it creates 
the opportunity to consider a new technology regulatory model for those instances where the U.S. government wants technology trade to continue across the Pacific, but in a more controlled manner. Can you tell us more about that lesson and how it could play out in the future, particularly as it relates to the U.S. and China? Well, Todd, I think your question just hit the number one nail on the head. And it's really why we wanted to share a little bit more in the new edition of the book about some of the negotiations that had taken place. Um, I think in the world of technology, we've reached a particular moment in time when, frankly, the United States and China are going to need to decide together as two governments whether they want to see certain technologies, I'll say perhaps especially in the consumer services area, but also somewhat more broadly, flow from China to the United States and flow from the United States to China. And when you think about what the TikTok negotiations represented, they really were the first example of a conversation uh, about whether there would be circumstances in which the U.S. government would be comfortable with a Chinese consumer service operating and under what kinds of controls. That is what led us in when you know, TikTok reached out to us uh, to explore that opportunity. We put together a, a, a plan. It was part of my job to talk to officials in Washington, D.C. about it. And a year later, I think we're at a time when that has sort of been put aside, but not forever. I think we're going to see the Biden administration probably return to this set of issues, I would guess, in 2022, whether it's for TikTok or some other service. And uh, it will ask, what controls does it want to put in place? The Chinese government will ask the same question. What controls is it comfortable seeing put in place? The real question is, is there a bridge across the Pacific that will ensure some level of interoperability between the two nations for these kinds of services? Or will the two governments decide they don't want that to exist? And that's going to be a big question for the future. It's interesting. It's not just a bridge across the Pacific, but it's a bridge across worldviews and philosophies and communism and capitalism and uh, just very different approaches to regulation. How might that play out in terms of specifics? For example, in this case, Microsoft was looking at hosting TikTok's U.S. operations in a secure data center in the U.S. Does that mean, for example, that Chinese authorities in that scenario would not have been able to have any kind of insight into the algorithms? Well, I think it means a couple of things. Number one, I think that the U.S. government would likely, if it follows the pattern from last year, want to take a close look at cybersecurity protection. You know, to what extent is the service being run in a way that ensures the cybersecurity of, say, the United States? Number two, what about privacy? Specifically, what about the privacy of the data of American consumers? Will that data leave the United States? Will it otherwise be accessible to a government in another country? I think a third issue, which has grown in importance even in the last 13 months since we had those discussions, is concerns about disinformation. And you know, that is where you start to focus specifically on algorithms, how they work, what is served up, what kind of transparency will there be if there were to be a, a Chinese service in the United States operating in a more controlled manner, um, what kinds of safeguards would the U.S. government want to see? And of course, interestingly, all of this comes at a time when the Chinese government has been imposing more regulations within China, specifically for consumer services, to 
create more transparency on what are in effect the algorithms for these services. Um, among other things, you see both governments potentially asking very similar questions. And what remains to be seen is how far they push them and whether the answers are similar as well. Brad, what would you like to see from a Microsoft perspective in terms of this kind of international policy, thinking in part about just the enormous market that China represents and the importance to a business such as Microsoft of being able to serve that market if it can? What are your preferences in terms of an overall policy stance here? Well, the first thing I believe is important and a point I've made in recent conversations with you know, officials from China and officials from the United States is that I think the tech sector needs clarity and stability in terms of the regulatory structure that will oversee the movement of technology back and forth. I don't think we can get uh, clarity until we have specificity, and then we're going to need some stability, meaning we need to have some confidence that the rules that are put in place will persist for a reasonable period of time. You know, right now, with a new administration in Washington, the discussions have been at a higher altitude and at a conceptual level. So, you know, it's all well and good to ask us what we might wish for. The truth is, nobody grants our wishes in this space. We need the two governments to decide. I will say, I think that there are certain areas where I hope that we can continue to bring American technology to China and have a level of interoperability across the Pacific. Um, I think it's important for American technology companies to continue to serve multinationals when they're in China. So that if we have a Volkswagen or a Starbucks, for example, that use Azure in other parts of the world, we want them, of course, to be able to use Azure in China. I think there's a global interest that should be shared by the two governments in really advancing technology that will address sustainability and carbon and climate issues where I hope the world can be united. Uh, I think there needs to be a real conversation about the role of basic research. The two countries have two of the leading populations of great engineers and scientists. And if we're going to solve the world's great problems, we need to continue to enable people to work together across borders. So those are three areas where I hope technology can continue to move to China, where I hope people can continue to work together. And then I think there is this issue about consumer services and what specifically to do the two governments want to put in place. Brad, the most important question, I think, which you really surprisingly did not get into in the book is, did those weekend conversations with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, require you to miss a Green Bay Packers game? <laughs> I don't think they did. They were in the preseason. Okay. <laughs> All of okay. this unfolded in July and August, but there were a lot of phone calls. Okay, good. Just, just to make sure there. All right. Coming up, the key mistake from September 11th that Brad Smith says the U.S. is repeating in the digital era. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included.
Let's get back to our conversation with Brad Smith, Microsoft's president, about the paperback update to his book, Tools and Weapons, which he wrote with co-author Carol Ann Brown. Big picture, the other big takeaway that I took is the need for additional transparency about cyber attacks and better information sharing among companies in the U.S. and even among U.S. government agencies. In fact, you write that you as Microsoft were essentially a bridge at times between different government agencies that were coming to you for information about other agencies because you were able to share information more freely. You write in the book that it's impossible to avoid the grave conclusion that the sharing of cybersecurity threat intelligence is even more challenged than it was for terrorist threats before 9-11. That's chilling. Are, are you seeing any progress on that front? Uh, we are seeing progress. But you know, before we talk about the progress, I think it's good to spend a moment talking about the problem. Uh, because the, you know, I, the more I reflect on the state of cybersecurity protection, the more I think that the conclusions that were reached by the 9-11 Commission really should speak to us two decades later. Um, when the you know, Congress you know, took apart the problem and dissected it afterwards, after 9-11, you know, it found that all of the data points were in the hands of the government at that time to identify the terrorist threats but they were in different information silos. And it wasn't just an issue of, of technology or, or practice. It actually was an issue of culture. And that's what the 9-11 Commission said. It said that the intelligence community at the time had a culture of sharing information only when there was a need to know. And they said they needed to move to a culture of a need to share. Now it's 20 years later, and the data about cyber attacks and threats are in many more silos, in fact, than the case for terrorist threats before 9-11, because it's not just data that is in the hands of the government, and specifically the NSA with respect to, say, foreign intelligence, and CISA with respect to you know, domestic intelligence and the FBI, but we have all these tech companies that have information as well. And I give the Biden administration a lot of credit for not only putting in some really superlative people in key jobs, but driving quickly to better share information, certainly across the government, to start to get more information from the private sector. I don't think the job is done yet. I think we need Congress to act and put in place a national law that will address cyber incident reporting so we get more clarity and consistency. And we will, I think, always continue to encourage people in government to share back with the private sector so that we can be better informed and use that information to better protect our customers as well. Brad, I can re remember past cases, though, where Microsoft wanted to be careful not to disclose too much information about its customers. So how do you draw that line between oversharing and giving enough information so that everybody has full visibility into the potential for cyber threats? Well, I think you're asking just a critical question, Todd. And if you look at where these issues have foundered in the past, say in Congress five or seven or 10 years ago, it was always about that precise concern. Would companies end up disclosing what in effect was private or confidential information about customers? And I think that the state of the art has advanced in a way that can enable us to identify the, the attacks, the threats, the sources of the attacks without having to disclose the victims, the customers that we are seeing. 
And that's the line that we should really think about. And if we can draw that line effectively with clarity in a way that gives everybody comfort and confidence, uh, then I think we can do a lot to strengthen the cybersecurity protection for the nation without causing people to be concerned about privacy. One of the key scenarios and incidents that you talk about in the update to the book, Tools and Weapons, is solar winds. And of course, that had also not existed as an attack. Of course, it's a company, but many people had not heard about the company prior to the infiltration of all of these systems um, using this supply chain attack that was really unprecedented in modern history. And, and you write about that in the update to the book. I'm wondering, are there lessons that you can draw from the solar winds incident that apply to this need for transparency? How could greater transparency prevent or perhaps minimize something like solar winds in the future? Well, I think transparency definitely has a critical role to play. Um, you know, specifically, the more data that is coming in, the faster we're able to identify the nature of the attacks, uh, the more we're able to aggregate threat intelligence across, say, companies in the industry, uh, the better able we will be to prevent or stop these kinds of attacks. Uh, you know, the solar winds attack, as we describe in the book, was very sophisticated, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, first of all, planting malware in the SolarWinds Orion update and really tampering, in effect, with the software supply chain, uh, the use of then command and control servers at GoDaddy and then second stage command and control servers at AWS, all within the United States, it appears. And, you know, it just points to the need to be able to aggregate data. But I also think, as we really uh, sought to describe in the chapter, it's why we put it as the first chapter in the new edition, there's a lot more that we can and should learn from the Solar Winds episode. You know, some of it goes to how we strengthen software and technology. Some of it goes to the sharing of threat intelligence. I also believe that it really calls again for us to reflect on the need to strengthen international norms. Um, there had been, before SolarWinds, some preliminary efforts, important ones, to make clear that tampering with the software supply chain should be off limits for governments. And it should, in my view. Uh, it's a bit like tampering with the blood supply. I mean, everyone loses confidence in something that is vital for a part of society, or in this case, our whole economy, because our whole economy depends on people having confidence in the integrity of software updating. And what we do for the software supply chain, we should also do to shore up our protection of elections and electoral processes, as well as to address healthcare. I think that it's just such a tragedy that we have seen some take advantage of the pandemic by unleashing ransomware attacks on, say, hospitals and the public health agencies. We've even seen some nation state attacks in this space. So yeah, I think there's a lot of food for thought. And it's why I think this is the right time to have a broader conversation about this. It's such a difficult situation, though, because you have these effectively state sponsored groups that are in part from Russia and China. And there's this wall, effectively, where the governments in each of those countries can I think from 
the perspective of the United States, pretend that they're not behind these attacks. How do you create that kind of international norm or even those kinds of understandings when you have that kind of situation where uh, there isn't a, a lot of uh, forthright uh, communication from the perspective of the U.S. or or honesty about the source or the origins of the attacks? Well, I think you're raising a really important point. And sometimes I have conversations with government officials from, say, the intelligence community or elsewhere in the United States or around the world. And, you know, I can sense their skepticism. They're saying, well, why should we strengthen laws if we know other people are going to violate them? And my response is because if we don't have laws, then everything's going to get violated. There's no norms that will hold people accountable. So just think about how we deal with crime in any domestic sense. You have to start by being clear. What is it that is against the law? Once that is established, which is what international norms can help us do, you have to have a capability to investigate when there are criminal offenses. You have to identify when a crime has taken place. You have to be able to establish who committed it. Then you have to advance accountability. And you can't necessarily bring the officials of a foreign government to another country to stand trial, although occasionally you can, but you can create accountability. And that's what happened, for example, when the U.S. and multiple governments acted earlier this year to state publicly that it was, in their view, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service that was responsible for the solar winds attack. And you can do two other things in the international space that, frankly, are also helpful. One is you can work to disrupt this kind of activity. And when, especially when it comes to ransomware, that's one of the things we've been doing through Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit for a number of years. You can use, in some cases, even judicial process to seize the command and control servers, to seize the, the, the data that are stored in a data center. And you can put a real dent in the ability of an organized criminal group or even nation state to continue to move forward with these kinds of attacks. And we've seen in recent years, the U.S. government develop a deterrence Doctrine. They've even used it, it appears at times, say, in the run up to the 2018 midterm elections. So, governments do have more tools in their toolkit than they are using today, or most people would perhaps realize. The key is to keep learning the lessons from these attacks and putting those tools to work. Coming up, Brad Smith on Microsoft's efforts to build a new consolidated security engineering organization inside the company. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. We're talking with Brad Smith, Microsoft's president, about the new update to his book, Tools and Weapons, which was originally published two years ago and just came out in paperback. Microsoft recently announced plans to create a new security, compliance, identity, and management engineering organization inside the company. Uh, 
It would be led by Charlie Bell, a longtime former Amazon executive, if the companies can come to terms over Bell's non-compete agreement with Amazon. I'm interested in this whole idea of Microsoft creating this new engineering organization and going after this area of security specifically. And of course, I'm thinking trustworthy computing. This is not new necessarily, but it's a new era. How do you draw the line between revenue generating security activities? Microsoft just recently, this past year, announced that it's making $10 billion a year in revenue on security and those that are for the greater good. And what would you say to those who might criticize the company for making money on security initiatives at the same time that flaws in its own software continue to create vulnerabilities that are uh, exploited by some of these attacks? Well, I would offer a couple of thoughts. The first is I think one thing for people to think about is there is the security of a software product, and then there is a security product. Um, let us take something like M365, and of course, you know, we have to ensure that the product is secure. If there's flaws, vulnerabilities, we have to address them, patch them. We have to keep strengthening the security of the product. But we also are a company that is in the security product business. And by that, I mean, think of the kind of service we offer with Intune that enables a customer to secure not only their Windows or Microsoft services, but the iPhones or the Android phones of their employees. We obviously don't make that hardware, but we offer a security service so that a customer can use one service to protect its entire technology portfolio. So I would first say, think about those two things as being related, but quite distinct. And we need to strengthen the first and have a business in the second. And then I would say there's one other dimension that is worth thinking about. In any product market, there are certain features that are standard, and there are other features that are accessories. And you know, especially when you have something that it relates to something like security, one needs to be very thoughtful. One needs to ensure a high level of base protection. But you don't necessarily want to build into the base product something that will not be used by everyone. If you have a diversified group of customers where some people want to use one thing and some people want to use something else, in part because of the enormous diversity of, say, their legacy IT infrastructure, you need to think about how you offer people what works right for them without trying to necessarily sell that to everyone or even build it in for everyone. So there's a level of complexity that we need to think through. And the lines will probably shift over time. I think we have to be very thoughtful. We have to be agile. We have to be mindful that the right solution for 2021 may be different by the time we get to 2022. And I'll just say, I think Charlie Bell can help us figure that out. And that will be good, not just for Microsoft and our customers, it will be good for the country and the world. And I'm looking forward to the days when we reach uh, you know, an understanding with our friends at Amazon or Cross Lake Washington or in Bellevue, and he can get to work. Finally, you write in the book about the real advances in terms of technology that COVID-19 has brought on. Obviously, we're experiencing it right here. The last time I spoke with you, I drove across the lake to your offices at Microsoft to sit with you, which was great, but I, I'm feeling a, a connection with you here regardless in terms of the, the ability to see you and, and talk with you. You also, though, caution that 
people may be overly exuberant about the potential of virtual technologies. Um, and it's not the same. We're not in the same room. Where do you see this headed, uh, just based on your own experience, Brad, as a leader in COVID and the, the future of virtual work? How do you see this playing out over the next few years? Well, I think technology is almost always a tool uh, if we're putting it to good use, and it's seldom a panacea. Um, you know, we live in a world where we need to put that technology to use, and we need to remember that in many uh, cases, the aspects that have served humanity well for decades, centuries, or even millennia are likely to continue to play a role. I think we should be enthusiastic about the rapid advances in a product like Microsoft Teams or even the competing products over the last two years. They've leapfrogged all of us to a new level. And that's going to be a wonderful thing. You know, it's going to enable people to you know, work from home, if, even if they're just doing it for a couple of hours because they need to be able to you know, take a son or daughter to a dental appointment or a soccer match, or maybe they want to work a day or two or more a week from home. Maybe they want to live somewhere else. Maybe they want to be able to visit with a doctor via a telehealth appointment. Maybe if there's a snow day in Issaquah, Washington, it will no longer be a day of learning loss, but a day where students are connected with the teacher. Uh, and they may or may not be excited about that change. But all of this is giving us new options as individuals, as employers, as communities, as a society. And that's great. And at the same time, I think it gives us all the ability to pursue what we call in the book a blended future. You know, when I just think about some of the experiences I had over the last two years, I think about the fact that, for example, I first met with Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the prime minister of Greece, in person in Davos in January of 2020, and then in Athens in February, and then had a series of virtual meetings that, frankly, people wouldn't have had but for the pandemic. And then I traveled to Athens in October of last year to launch the data centers. We tell a little bit about that episode. And we've been able to continue the relationship by video. And then I met with him in person in New York last week at the UN General Assembly meetings. And I am thrilled that we were able to continue to talk by video. And I frankly am equally <laughs> thrilled that we can sit down and meet in person both of these things, I think, have a very bright future ahead of themselves. Brad Smith, thank you very much for spending the time with us. Thank you, Todd, as always. See you. Brad Smith, Microsoft's president and newly named vice chair, is the author with Carol Ann Brown of Tools and Weapons, which just came out in paperback with new chapters and inside stories from the past two years. By the way, copies of the new paperback edition of Tools and Weapons will be included among the items in the swag bag for in-person attendees at the GeekWire Summit. Again, that's taking place on October 4th and 5th, and you can register at geekwire.com summit. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. And please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We will be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast. <laughs>